0: Good morning again. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Luke chapter 7. Uh, We will look at the end of Luke chapter 7. We looked at the beginning of Luke chapter 7 last week, and it can be found on page 864 in the black Bibles that you'll see under the chair. So if you don't have a Bible, but want to kind of follow along with where we're tracking with the story today, it's on page 864, the Gospel of Luke chapter 7. Um, Our series that we're in For the next several months, we're calling Meet Jesus. We're looking at pictures of Jesus from Luke and Acts. Both of those books in the New Testament were written by Luke. Um, So kind of getting the same perspective, but different kinds of books as well. Uh, So we are going to get snapshots of Jesus, portraits of Jesus, understanding who Jesus is. What does it mean to find faith in Jesus? What does it mean to treasure Jesus, to follow Jesus? We're going to learn about that over the next several months weeks. We're calling it today, this sermon, Jesus Meets a Sinner. Uh, And I just want to clarify that that's language that is highlighted in the text, and so that's why I'm using the term. But just to be clear, so we all know everyone Jesus ever met was a sinner. Okay, so I just wanted to clarify that up front. We believe we're all sinners, but that this is kind of a a word that's used uh, in particular here in this text. So Jesus Meets a Sinner, we're going to be in verses 36 36 through 50. Because one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. Now, the Pharisees were the very strict Bible readers, Bible memorizers, uh, guys that were obsessed with the law at Jesus' time, and there were often conflicts between Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus would argue that he was in keeping with the intent of the Scripture, while they were selfishly just keeping to the letter of Scripture, and so there was always some conflicts happening. So... That's a little bit more of the context. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house, and he took his place at the table. It says, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet... He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And they could not pay. He canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word and we thank you that it is an invitation to come as we are and we confess that we are desperately in need of you that everything else that this world has to offer is not enough. So we thank you for your generosity, that you're the God that comes towards us in Jesus. And we pray that you would help us to hear and to understand. We pray that your spirit would meet us, that we would have clarity, that we would hear your words in this text, that we would see Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you have ever uh, been in a situation where you were invited to some kind of formal dinner, but you felt like maybe you were out of place and you you were a little nervous about the circumstances? Has that ever happened to any of you? Raise your hand. It's happened to me, happened to me a million times, right? You're, going, you're walking into the situation, and maybe it's the formality of the situation that makes you nervous. Maybe it's the people that are involved that makes you nervous because you just don't know them, right? Maybe it's a different cultural setting, and you're like, well, I was raised this way, but I'm not sure how they do things in this setting. So... I'm not sure if I'm going to be okay in this situation. Um, My wife and I were talking with some friends the other day, uh, and we were talking about third party who we all mutually loved, right? So we weren't gossiping about them. We were just talking about this third party, these other friends, third set of friends that we we loved dearly, and we were just talking about how we have some history with these people, um, and we used to really feel nervous around them because these people come from very good families, and my wife and I, not so much, right? Uh, and these people had money, and my wife and I, not so much. And these people were just super well-spoken, and my wife and I, you know, we're getting better on that end maybe, but, but again, not so much. And so there's this distance, this cultural distance that we felt a kind of a am not worthy feeling we would have around these people. Um, but the cool thing is, is these, these people that I'm describing uh, love Jesus. Because of that, they're gracious people, and they always close the gap. You know, they, they never made us feel like we didn't deserve to be around them. They, they reached out to us in love. They were kind to us. They were accepting to us. They embraced us. They showed grace to us. And so we were just talking about, again, that as a mark of grace and how we genuinely loved these people because of their willingness to close this gap that we felt because we felt an outsider-ness or we're not good enough or whatever it might be. I'm sure you've all felt that in some kind of setting. Uh, where maybe it was friends, maybe it was a formal situation, whatever it might be, where you felt like you're an outsider. And, and what we have here is a picture of a, a formal dinner and important people being there, and this outsider having the nerve to approach. And the important people were mad about it, right? Jesus welcomed sinners, but the other people not so much. They they didn't welcome the sinners. They didn't welcome the outsiders, and I think what we're going to see here in this story is, is because they thought they deserved to be at that table. They didn't really understand their own position, that it was only by grace that they were at the table in the first place, and so I think this story is going to challenge us, how, how we think from, from both angles. Sometimes we're scared to approach the situation because we feel like we don't deserve it. Other times, we're, we're on the inside, and we don't want other people being brought in because we think we deserve to be there. And Jesus is going to challenge both sides of that equation. The first thing that I want us to see as the story unfolds is the emotional response of a sinner. We see a sinner who approaches Jesus with great emotion, humility, adoration, love. And it's a really beautiful, beautiful story. Again, we have the setting of it being at a Pharisee's house. And the way we understand it as we study kind of the history is that it was to some degree probably a, a kind of formal, more more almost banquet style meal, um, and so commentators would argue that it wasn't she wasn't rebuked for showing up at the party. She was rebuked for uh, approaching Jesus closely, and so there were uh, common meals in this day and time where people would be gathered around the table, and the riffraff would have been let in the gates and allowed to kind of watch, you know, stand against the wall and watch the important people eat. So there were kind of semi-public environments like this that a lot of commentators think that this was it. I don't know if you've ever, been, you've ever been in a situation where you're at a formal dinner and there's like the important people table up front so you can watch the important people eat and then you're at the not important person table over here. You know what I'm talking about? We do that at weddings and it usually doesn't offend us at a wedding, but there's other environments where we're like, oh, this is weird. You know, those are the good people. I'm the bad people over here at the other table. Um, so it would have been somewhat, somewhat like that. In this culture i have a picture here of people reclining at table the word recline is used here um, and so what you have here is you have a low table in the middle and you have people laying on a mat like if you ever laid on the carpet to watch tv and you're laying on one elbow and you're eating cheetos with the other hand right <laughs> or funyuns or whatever it is you know your snack of choice um cool ranch doritos okay and so you're just kind of propped up on one side. That, that's how we understand they would eat at these kinds of banquets or meals. And so um, that's why you hear this weird language in, you know, in the Gospels about like this disciple you know, laid his head on the other one because you know, they're kind of laying down sideways like this at the table. Um, so their feet would have been running out away from the table. Their bodies and heads would have been kind of against the table, laying on one side eating. And that's how they would do it. Again, not how we do things, but that's okay. Um, and, and so we have this concept that it wasn't, so crazy for her to be in the room, it was crazy for her to approach a holy man. Uh, so the setup is Pharisees asked him to eat, went in the Pharisee's house. He reclined at the table like we saw in the picture there. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. There's some other stories in the other gospels about other situations where women have brought alabaster flasks of ointment or fine perfume and anointed Jesus. There's enough differences here that, that I would agree with uh, Daryl Bach, who's one of the leading commentators in the book of Luke, who thinks this is actually a different story from that handful of other stories. Um, not the end of the world. Like I'm not going to kick you out of the church if you disagree with me on this point, right? but this is kind of our best understanding of it. Because what you see in the Gospels is there's a lot of similarities. There's like echoes of different stories. And so sometimes when we see those echoes and similarities, we think, oh, same story, two different perspectives. And then sometimes we see it and we go, oh, different stories with a couple of things that line up, you know, like um, there's an alabaster flask and some ointment and a meal. Uh, and that wasn't really that unusual in this culture. And so I would think that it's two different stories. That's how I understand it. Um, so she's taken this alabaster flask of perfume. That's how you would have carried it and kind of like glass ceramic type thing and, and This perfume or oil was very common in their culture uh, and she, it says, is anointing him. It says in verse 38, standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. So what I want you to see is this is an emotional response of adoration where she's weeping over him. She's uh, kissing him. She's anointing him. And because there's cultural distance, what you need to understand is that it 's not crazy for a woman to weep at someone 's feet and kiss and anoint that 's crazy to us because we 're not first century middle Eastern people, right And so what I want you to be able to see through that that weirdness, just acknowledging, okay, cultural distance that 's not how we do things, right um, We just don 't even really kiss each other for one thing, you know, in, in this day and time, they would greet each other with a holy kiss. You see that sometimes. In, other cultures where people kiss each cheek. You know, so there's, for one thing, just more kissing going on in their culture, um, more touching, more weeping, you know, more of a lot of these kind of things that don't happen as commonly in our culture. So, so don't miss that the weird part of the story is a sinner approaching a holy man. That's the weird part, right? Like the rest of this is incidental. So she has an emotional response, and she's approaching him, With emotion, with grace and humility. This little hook is falling off my ear. It's driving me crazy. Okay. Um, She's approaching him emotionally, worshiping, adoring, loving. The way she expresses her emotion is not as important as the reality that she feels like she can. Are are you seeing that? And so what I want us to think through is, um, do we feel that same invitation to approach God? Or do we feel like we need to stand at a distance? Are we like the Pharisee that thinks, you don't deserve to be in Jesus' presence, you need to keep your distance? Or do we believe we can come to Jesus in great emotion, in adoration, and in love, and weep, and show love, and express adoration for him? Do we believe we can do, we we can do that? Now, I, I can't see myself ever You know, weeping and anointing someone with oil and kissing their feet. Like I can't see myself doing that, right? Because of the cultural distance. But I believe the Bible is very clear that all of us that have faith in Jesus are to come to Him and emotionally respond to Him. So we need to be able to separate that out, right? So here's an example of this. One of the things that the 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 people of God have always done, Old Testament, New Testament, is we sing songs to God. We we worship Jesus. We say, Jesus, I love you. We say this out loud. We need to understand that's just weird, right? That's a weird emotional response to the God of the universe. And we do that because we believe he's approachable and he's worth it and he's lovely and we want to worship him. So like when I worship um, because of my cultural background, my upbringing, you know, whatever else you want to blame it on, like just kind of get down to nitty gritty, I think I'm really getting after it and being emotional when I rock back and forth and nod my head, right? Right? like i think that is a outrageous display of affection and emotion but i also understand that that's culturally different for others others of you you know you're weeping you're waving your hands you're you know there's different there's different emotional responses to jesus so what i'm saying is i'm not calling you to have this emotional response right i'm not calling you to break flasks of oil and i'm not calling you to rock back and forth the way i do when i sing i'm calling you to have an emotional response to jesus So what is that response? What is the essence of that? That is in a culture that says sinners can't get anywhere near Jesus or holy men. We say, no, I'm invited. We just sang a song earlier, come as you are. Jesus invites you into his presence. Jesus loves you. He's accepting. He is welcoming of you. That, That is the crux of the issue. We believe that God wants to know us. So that affects everything about how we live our life. Do we believe we can pray? And have a relationship with God well no i 've got to get my stuff together you know i 've kind of messed up i 've got to work on that first, and then I can approach God well no here we're we 're told he accepts sinners. come to him, come as you are, come to him, broken. That is the emotional response. It is good and proper and right to publicly and emotionally express our affection for jesus so so one of them is again what we 've always done as a as a people of god we 've always sang songs to God, thanking him for his Great works of salvation. In the Old Testament, they remembered his great ways of rescuing uh, his people in the past through the Passover, through the Exodus. And now we, on the other side of the cross, we sing songs to God, recognizing and praising him for saving us, for rescuing us through the cross by taking our sins on the cross on Jesus and giving us Jesus's righteousness. So we celebrate him, we sing to him, we praise him. Um, We also read his word. We believe that Jesus has spoken to us and that we can approach him and we come to him and say, what do you have to say to me, Jesus? I want to listen to you. I want to understand you. We study his words. We listen to him through the scriptures. What are other ways that we do this? Um, we share with others what we know of Jesus. We, it starts to come out, our emotional response to Jesus, that he's someone that we want to be with and talk to and be near. It comes out in our relationships. So we talk to other people about that relationship that we have with Jesus. Because there's some level of spontaneous response that we have, some some level of emotional uh, response of being drawn to Jesus. We're going to share that with the people around us. Now, again, don't don't confuse this with the the nitty-gritty of how that's done, right? Um, So I spend hours and hours every day talking to lots of people. Um, So it's probably going to come out in more conversations for me than maybe someone else. So I'm not saying how many conversations you have. I'm just saying, you know, if you're an introvert and you talk to half a person every day. It's going to come out in that half conversation you have every day, right? It's going to come out to some degree. If you're an extrovert that talks to a thousand people every day, it's going to come out. It might come out in, at different, you know, in different ways. It might come out filtered through your personality, through your opportunities, but it's going to come out. It's going to be expressed. Again, don't, don't confuse the cultural expression of she weeped, she kissed, she, you know, she did it this way. Don't confuse that with, no, it's going to come out in your life. There's going to be a response to Jesus. It can't be stopped. It's going to overflow through your life. Uh, One of the other things that we're going to see through the logic of what Jesus is going to explain further through the story is it's going to come out just in how we love each other. Jesus is talking in this story really more about how she loved Jesus. But when you pull back from the New Testament, you see that those things always go together. We love God and we love other people. And James made this real clear last semester when we were studying the book of James. If we really love God, if we really have faith, we love other people. We feel loved, and so we're going to respond in love. And so those are the emotional responses of a sinner, of people like you and me that are sinners that believe that Jesus invites us to himself, welcomes us to approach him in love. So the next thing we're going to see as the story unfolds is religious disgust at a sinner. Um, Sometimes that's a barrier to us from the outside, right? Sometimes you're seeing yourself as a sinner that wants to approach Jesus, and other religious people around you say, no, no, no. You got to get your stuff together before you can come to Jesus. Sometimes we are that religious person, as I said earlier. Sometimes we feel a proximity to something. Sometimes we are in that inner ring or inner circle. And when other people try to come in, we're like, you can't come in here. This is for me. This is, this is my personal space here. This is something I earned my way into. And as this unfolds, we're going to see none of us have ever earned our way into that setting. So verse 39 says it this way. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So This religious man, the Pharisee, has disgust towards sinners. Verse 40, and Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Um, seems like a great understatement. If I was thinking private thoughts to myself, if I was judging Jesus in my mind, and then He's like, "Dave, I have something to say to you." I think I would be kind of worried, right? <laughs> he says, "Say it, teacher." Um, so He has discussed. There's all kinds of religious barriers that we have set up. We we have this preconceived notion, just like the Pharisee, just like Simon, where we were like, "Well, well, that person can't come here. They don't. They're not cleaned up." enough yet we need to get them we need to fix them then they can come to jesus and continually jesus says no come to me and i'll fix you come to me I'll, I'll clean you up come to me first again the song we sang earlier come as you are we have this idea that it's like a hazmat situation here's some guys in hazmat suits um they've got some kind of like you know chemicals they're spraying each other with uh how, how do you feel about the sinners around you First of all, do you recognize you're a sinner? That was a big problem the Pharisees had, Simon had. He didn't even think he was a sinner, right? But he really didn't want to get touched or influenced by sin, so he wanted to keep them at a distance. So he said, According to my rules of the game, a prophet can't be near a sinner. It just doesn't work. What makes you a prophet is keeping sinners at arm's length. And Jesus deconstructs that whole notion. He says, No, it's not. Being holy doesn't mean you hate these sinners means you, you certainly shouldn't want to embrace sin, right? Jesus is not saying, we sin and everything's cool. Don't worry about it. Sin is great. He's saying, but we love sinners. We accept sinners. We build bridges with these sinners. So what's the paradigm that you have in your mind? Who, who are the people that you have disgust towards? Just to make it really personal, right? I just you know, go through the catalog in your mind. Uh, your mental Rolodex, kids under 30, I know you don't know what I'm saying. Um, you know, just think of the list of people in your brain, right? Your contact list, that's, that's the way to say it. Go through your contact list a- and say, who do I have disgust towards? Who do I have disgust towards? Who do I think doesn't deserve my company or Jesus's company or our church's company or our family's company or my friend's company Who are those people i find disgusting and then then you'll be able to relate to the pharisee who do you try to deserve who do you think doesn't deserve jesus isn't that a great oxymoron statement you don't deserve jesus here's the even crazier you don't deserve grace well grace by definition is undeserved you don't deserve forgiveness well forgiveness by definition is not deserved And that's what Jesus is trying to communicate to the religious people of his day, and I think to the religious people of our day too. That's us, right? We're the religious people. We're the ones like the Pharisees studying our Bible, trying to say we want to do what it says. Let's make sure we don't show disgust towards sinners. Does that mean we sin all the more so that grace may abound? Paul says, may it never be. Of course not. But we love people like Jesus. We say, I'm going to do my best not to sin, and then I'm going to show love to sinners, I'm going to befriend like Jesus was. And that's what Jesus invites us into. The last thing I want us to see is how then forgiveness changes a sinner. What, what's the process actually look like? What does this transformation look like? Look at verse 41. Jesus gives a little explanatory parable, right? He gives this little, this little story to make sense of the gospel, to make sense of forgiveness for the folks present here. Look at verse 41. A certain money lender had two debtors, right? Two guys owed him money. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. It's hard to make exact comparisons, but we'll say it's roughly like two months wages versus two years wages, okay? Being very rough here, but a big difference. That's the important thing. The important thing is not the exact amount. The important thing is there's a big difference, right? One guy owes an unpayable amount. Another guy owes a small payable amount. And he goes on and he says, When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both of them. So the moneylender was gracious um, in a culturally weird way, like over-the-top gracious. This just didn't happen in their culture, right? The Pharisees, they were sticklers for justice. And a lot of times, these were the guys that made themselves rich by not forgiving debts, but by holding people to their debts, right? And so he says he forgave them their debts. Now, which of them... Will love him more. Which of them will love him more? Verse forty-three. Simon answered, "The one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt." So even in his response, he's kind of distancing himself. I suppose you know he knows exactly what the answer is. I suppose well, maybe, maybe I suppose it would be the one with the bigger debt. And Jesus said, "You have judged rightly." Verse forty-four says, "Then turning toward the woman," so Jesus turns turns toward the woman, right? So again, remember, back up cultural setting formal banquet, the riffraff get to hang out around the edges, the important people are at the important people table. Jesus is not really supposed to interact with her. He's just kind of letting this unfold. Now he he turns to her and really shows her dignity as a person. He turns to her and he continues to explain to Simon. He says, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. So the common courtesy of the time would be to wash someone's feet, to offer water so they could wash their own feet, to offer a servant to wash their feet. But that was just common courtesy of the day. You know, you come in from a long trip, you've been driving through the night, you make it to your uncle's house. And he's like, hey, here's the bathroom. Here, you know, freshen yourself up. Here's a bed. I cleaned the sheets for you, right? It's in that kind of line of thinking. And so standard practice would have been to wash people's feet or offer them the opportunity to have their feet washed. And he's saying, You didn't do that for me, Simon, but but she has. He goes on and he says, "Um, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet, right? Again, they do a lot of kissing in their culture. We wouldn't do that, but there's there's these things we do to show people grace and to show people hospitality. Jesus is just saying, "You, you didn't show me the common courtesy. You didn't show me the common hospitality. You even held me at a distance, right? Trying to decide if I was holy enough to be uh, deserving of your hospitality, Simon. saying, but she has showed me this love. He goes on. You didn't anoint my head with oil. Another common thing they would do, right? We don't. We don't usually when someone comes over for dinner. Like here's some olive oil for your hair. Uh, but that's what they did, right? I mean, that was just kind of their common thing. These. These were the things they did in their culture that would be uh, equal to us offering uh, indoor plumbing to someone as a courtesy. They would offer oil and ointment and foot washing. And, and so he says. She did. She anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your, your sins are forgiven. So he makes the difference here that because she's done this, she's forgiven. And, and we need to clarify because the language, depending on your translation, might come through in a strange way, um, Daryl Bach, again, was really helpful on this as a commentator. He said it would be kind of like saying uh, it's raining outside because the windows are wet, right? So if you're like a super, like if you're a computer programmer or an engineer, you would say, hey, wait, that statement's not factually correct because the windows being wet doesn't make the rain happen, right? So we need to be clear here that Jesus is speaking colloquially like many of us do, common language. And he's saying the wetness of the windows shows us, proves to us, we know now that it is indeed raining because there's wetness on the windows. He's saying in the same way, I know it's clear and it's clear to all of you that she loves, that she's forgiven because she loves. It's clear, right? The the love is the evidence of this inner reality. And that's what the New Testament teaches again and again and again. That if we're forgiven, if we trust Jesus, if we know Jesus as our Savior, if we know we're sinners, if we know we need what Jesus gives, then we love. right? So don't misunderstand this to mean Jesus saying, she just earned my forgiveness by loving me. That's not what he's saying. He's saying she's just evidenced her forgiveness by showing love. That's the way it works in our life too. We we love because he first loved us. We love God. We love others because God approached us in love through Jesus. I I have a chart here that I've used in the past. This was... um, a chart that was first done, I think, by Paul Miller in the Sonship curriculum of World Harvest and Surge Ministries, and then it is now used in a a Bible study book we use called The Gospel-Centered Life. Some of y'all know The Gospel-Centered Life. It's a book a lot of our groups have done. And so what it does is it sets up this uh, growing angle, these two lines that get farther and farther apart, and the top line is a growing knowledge of God's holiness, right? So the more you become aware of God and who he is, the more you become kind of Overwhelmed that He's holy. That's why when people see God or see the Messengers of God face to face, they usually pass out or get sick or faint. Right? I mean, that's kind of the that's the response, the "woe is me" response of Isaiah chapter six. Like, I am I'm not worthy. God is holy. This is scary. So it's this growing knowledge of God's holiness. That bottom line is growing knowledge of my sinfulness. Those those two things go together, right? Those lines are always growing apart. The more we know God to be holy, the more we know ourselves to be sinners. The more aware I am that I've blown it, that I'm not holy because God is holy. The more I see the standard of holiness, the more I see my own uh, missing of the standard, all have fallen short of the glory of God. That's what sin is. And so if you believe that the gap has been closed between God's holiness and your sinfulness, as you grow in your knowledge of that gap widening, you're growing in the knowledge of what great cost it took to close that gap. Does that make sense? The way it's displayed on the chart is you have a growing appreciation for the gospel. Your cross has to get bigger because as you grow, as you mature, more and more you see how big your sins are. So to go back into the language here of this text, Jesus says, if you think you have big sins, you're going to love God a lot you think you have small sins, you're not going to love much. If you're always doing the work of diminishing your sin, my sins aren't that bad, I'm better than most people, you don't really need the cross, do you? You don't really need a God who sent his son to die for you if your sins are no big deal. And that's the point that he's trying to make here uh, to Simon. And he's using her as a demonstration. So, So sinners know, I'm a sinner, I need a savior. Some of us think we're not actually sinners. I mean, we say it, but we're like, "But it's not really a big deal." I mean, I'm not like those people. It's not like I needed, you know, Jesus dying on a cross for me or anything. And we belittle the gap that that God has closed through the gospel, through Jesus, what He has accomplished for us. And so Jesus here is is challenging the religious person to recognize, you know, what you think your sins are little, they're not. They're huge. And so, just recognize that those of us that are religious, those of us that through great discipline and perseverance have lived a holy life, we are at greatest risk to miss the gospel. We are at the greatest risk to think God is pleased with us because we've lived such a disciplined and holy life. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying don't miss the gospel, that we are all sinners that need a savior. So, again, you know, Paul says, should we sin all the more so that grace may abound? Of course not. No, that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying you better understand that any holiness, any discipline, any good thing in your life is a result of God's grace to you. It's a result of God's goodness. And the more you actually get to know God, you're not going to be belittling your sins anymore. You're going to have a heightened awareness of how holy God is and how great your sins really are. Even if their heart sins that no one sees, even if your neighbors think you are all American, you're going to know in increasing measure, that you are a sinner, but that God is good. God loves you. God is gracious. The cross is going to get bigger. Jesus is going to get bigger. Forgiveness is going to become more amazing, and you're going to love God more and love others more, and that's what Jesus is saying here. So the cross chart illustrates that when we come to Jesus, we have an awareness that he's holy, that we're a sinner, and we need Jesus to cover that gap. And you know what? When we grow in maturity, it's the same process. The gospel saves us. We enter through the gospel and the gospel matures us it transforms us it remakes us day to day it helps us to see others as persons that we should show dignity to because we love them and we don't think we're any better than them we don't think we're any better than them and that's in contrast to the religious disgust for sinners so this is how forgiveness changes a sinner we have this process that jesus shows here then is, is reiterated throughout the New Testament that this love for Jesus is evidence of forgiveness. So Jesus says, Your sins are forgiveness, or your sins are forgiven. The last two verses kind of comes to a head. Verse 49 says, And those who are at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Um, so back at the beginning, the guy was questioning is this guy really a prophet? Can this guy really speak the words of God because he's he, he's, communicating, he's allowing a sinner to touch him? So he's probably not really a prophet. And Jesus answers them. well, for one thing, I know what you're thinking, right? So that's kind of scary. And then he, he keeps going and he says, your sins are forgiven. And they're amazed because their understanding and my understanding is that only God can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. So Jesus is standing in the place of God, we believe the the understanding of the Trinity. The most simple way to say it is one God and three persons. One uh, what and three whos. That Jesus is God in the flesh, and that He says, "As God, I can forgive your sins." He's one that paid the price for our sins. So they're they're amazed. Who is this who even forgives sins? And He nails it down one more time with the final verse. He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Just to be clear, her faith in me has saved her. Now she can go in peace. Let me pray for us and respond. Father, we thank you that you invite us to approach you. I thank you that you love us through Jesus, that you've made it clear in this story. God, I I pray that you would would help us to, to see that we are sinners, that all have fallen short of the glory of God, that none of us have uh, worked our way to the table, none of us have earned our way to the table, but we come to the table with you through Jesus, through forgiveness of sins, through Jesus dying on the cross for us and giving us his very righteousness. So thank you for inviting us to come as we are. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for transforming us through that forgiveness. And I pray that you'd help us to grow in our faith in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. We want to respond.